Welcome to Sonic's Flight, the podcast devoted to all things Sonics. Sonic's Flight is a monthly podcast discussing current events, news, and topics of interest to the Sonics community. We aim to entertain and educate builders and pilots of Sonics aircraft designs, inspiring them to complete and operate their aircraft safely and efficiently. Welcome to the Sonics Flight Podcast. This is episode number 68, The Last Mile to First Flight. So 90% done, 90% to go. That's the saying that every home builder hears at some point or another. And really, it's kind of a home building truth as you near the end of your project. What this saying really refers to is the multitude of those little tasks that have to be completed as you start to finish out the project. So we'll speak with our buddy and fellow Sonics builder, Tim Reed, about running the last mile to first flight. My name is Jeff Schultz, builder and pilot of Sonic 604 and Sonics 1374. Joining me once again are my two good flying buddies, John Gillis and Gary Motley. John is an active glider pilot, he's an experienced Sonics builder, and most recently finished his new B-model Super B YX conversion. So John, how's it going? I'm doing good. Last time we talked, the Super B was flying well, the autopilot was autopiloting, and uh, you were just chasing down the squawk list. How's that squawk list coming? I've got about five hours on the Super B. The squawk list is down to uh, a carbon monoxide issue, because I think I, uh, I took Gary's advice and put a carbon monoxide detector in, which means that now I'm worried about carbon monoxide. You have a problem you never knew existed. I think that's the case, and now I'm chasing it. So I'm plugging up holes and uh, trying to get that carbon monoxide down. Um, before I had the meter, I was happy. I had a headache, but I was That's happy. the euphoria. Ignorance so, is bliss. Ignorance is bliss, yeah. Ignorance is bliss. So um, hopefully I'll get it out this weekend. Um, it's been down for two weeks because of the weather here. Uh, and my focus on, I have to feed, Karen feed two airplanes now, so. Oh, that life's tough, <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, condol- we, we talked about this way back, but what I found, um, I, I was not getting all that exhaust residue and burnt smoke oil and, and whatever else was coming in. It wasn't coming in up front, it was coming in from the tail cone. So maybe some of those, um, you know, the, the opening for the flat push rods or something like that around the aft portion of the cockpit is allowing that to creep in and, so it'd be interesting to see what you find. Well, that's what I've been focusing on. Um, with the B model, I had a problem with some uh, clearances with the flap actuator and had to actually cut a hole in the, the bottom of my fuselage so that it could push down about a half an inch beyond the skin. Um, that's a hole that uh, could easily suck in fumes. So I just uh, fabricated a flap to close that when the flaps are up. And I'm hoping that'll that'll solve a lot of my uh, CO problems. I wouldn't be surprised if that's where the majority is coming in right there. It, t- it tends to kind of hug the belly and just sort of creep its way back. So, yep, sounds like the likely suspect. Yeah, and this this hole is just past the, uh, the fuselage on the bottom. So I, I think that's really where my problem was. Mm. All right. But I got to get it up in the air and, and see what it is. Okay, well, cool. We'll be following. And Gary Motley. Gary is a longtime pilot, a former CFI, and a multi-time airplane builder. Gary, how's it going? 
We're freezing my nads off around here, buddy. I have to say, the last two weeks have been kind of an extended, almost daily snowstorm. And uh, my car actually, I, I haven't done this in years, but I actually got stuck in the snow in my little front wheel drive car the other day and had to dig myself out. So, but anyway, maybe, maybe that, if you drove as well as you fly, Gary, you wouldn't have that problem. <laughs> I, I did say recently, as in years before I've been stuck. So I think that's a pretty good track record for places I have to go. So, Gary, you mentioned you, you were working on your plane. What's the latest on that? Oh, uh, you know, you know, more a little electronic gremlin problems. Uh, I've had a weird little situation where I would get transponder errors that started off very sporadic and, and, and many hours apart sometimes. And uh, the transponder errors started showing up more and more frequently. And then about two weeks ago, as I'm coming into my class D air sport, uh, uh, ATC said, uh, where'd you go? <laughs> and they basically said I dropped off my transponder. So I had to start giving verbal announcements where I was at. And so at that point, I figured, well, it was time to yank it. And, and send it back to Dynan, which is where it's at now, just waiting to find out what the verdict hmm. is. Your Dynan system is really a trig, isn't it? The transponder is trig, yes, and as well as the, the radios are basically trig, but branded Dynan. Okay. Yeah, the, the Dynan has some sort of a overlay to that, right? I'm sure they have something that's in there, yeah. I, I'm just curious because I just put – I replaced the uh, transponder in both my uh, – my sailplane and my uh, the Sonics with a trig, and uh, I haven't had I've been having really clean reports on both airplanes from mm -hmm. the ADSB, but uh, I'm yeah, just kind of curious. Wasn't the issue? Uh, uh, like I said, there were some spurious problems. I had spoken to them a few months ago about it. Uh, they were thinking it was just some spurious electronic. Uh, you know, overriding or interference with it occasionally, you know, with what reports they'd had before previously. My impression is when I spoke to the tech rep this time and kind of described it, I got the impression he had a much better idea what was going on. And of course, they let you know. And, you know, he gave me an RMA number and, and off it goes. So we'll see. Hopefully they'll treat me as well as they have in the past. So. I'm sure they'll get to the bottom of it. Dynon has pretty good luck when you send them stuff. They they usually figure it out and get back to you pretty quick. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, hopefully that won't take very long because um, you got to get back in there and keep that Hobbs a ticking. Yeah. Fortunately, you know, it hit me at a bad time of the weather, so I don't feel like I'm just you know trembling and shaking, chomping at the bit, uh, wanting to fly because I really couldn't fly anymore. Yeah. Well, good. We had a halfway decent run of good weather here the last couple of weeks. And so I had five, I think, short, relatively short flights. Short for you, Gary. I had, I think my longest one was only an hour and a half. But um, yeah, so getting out and, and taking advantage. You know, Gary, I was looking at my logbook. I hadn't flown since we flew your plane when I was out there in Colorado. And uh, wow. yeah, that, that had been quite the little break. I was starting to get a little bit of the jitters. So it was nice to get back in and knock the rust off the cylinders. Well, good, good. Glad it's going for you. And now we're snow covered again, and so I don't know when it's going to be back in the plane. So we'll see. When I get blue skies, I'll let you know. You'll get it a couple of days later. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Alrighty. Well, as I mentioned earlier, the guest for this episode is our friend Tim Reed out in New York. Tim is building a B model Sonics number eighteen. It's a tail dragger Aero V turbo powered plane, and he's been building on this thing since 2017. 
And if you think back, Tim was the guest on episode 24 when we talked about taking the plunge and becoming a builder. That was back in August of 2017. So, Tim, thanks for coming back. And it seems like just yesterday we were talking to you about your brand new project. Yeah, it was. Um, it's definitely been a learning experience since August of 2017. I cannot believe it's uh, it's almost three years later. And uh, yeah, I uh, decided to go for a, a nose dragger. I'm not as uh, not as cool as the super bee out there in uh, Colorado, but uh, you know, we all have our uh, our vices, I guess. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's been a fun project. Uh, I've definitely learned a lot. Um, Definitely a humbling experience. Uh, I went into this back in, what, August of 17, thinking, oh, yeah, I'll have it done in two years, no problem. And uh, definitely not. I'm I'm about 90% done and 90 to go. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's uh, it's been a great experience overall, though. I've had a lot of fun. Hey, Tim, I, I had the impression that I could do the conversion from the A model to the B model in three months. It took me a full year, so... Um, you know, you're doing fine. Thanks, man. And uh, your project looks amazing, too. I've seen the pictures. <laughs> well, there's something I use all the time when we're talking about just managing projects. And it's the idea that if you're not ahead of schedule, you're really behind schedule and you just don't know it. So if you think you're going to set an aggressive timetable to build a plane, uh, boy, you just got to hit it hard and you got to get way out in front because at some point you're going to slow down and, and uh, you're going to eat up time you didn't think you were going to. So... Yeah, I'd say you're pretty much right on track with how the majority of builds go. Yeah, it's it's been uh, it's been a little, you know, I get points where you're a little disheartened, but I think that's part of the process of building. Uh, you think you're going to be further ahead than you are, but um, you know, after talking to other people, and you know, I have three young kids and a lot of stuff going on at home, working full time. You know, I only get out to the garage one or two nights a week if I can. But uh, yeah, progress is progress, you know. Well, there's another old saying that says um, that which is attained easily um, has little value. And so if you got to work at it, it's going to make that first flight that much sweeter. And of course, you got to maintain a good work life, um, a work life balance. So you can't neglect your other responsibilities, especially to your family, uh, by getting out there and playing on the airplane. Yeah, Tim, mine was about a three and a half year build as well. Yeah, it makes me feel better about it. The guys who you, you do hear about the guys who can build them in six months, but these are multi-time builders and they're retired, so they have their time. They know what they've been done, and uh, <clears throat> they know all the pitfalls. So don't expect to be a first-time builder and get it done the same time those guys do. And actually, guys, um, I I kind of think there's a grimy side to the 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 really really sexy centerfold stories in sport aviation and kit planes about these these awesome builds. It sets the standards so high that people like us start to think, man, I could never compete at that level. I must somehow be deficient in what I'm doing. At least that's kind of the way I feel sometimes. And I got to remind myself that it's always good to see examples of of what's possible and something to strive for and to kind of emulate. But don't make that the standard by which you have to hold yourself to. You kind of have to be comfortable with your own level of skill and progress and, and do it for your reasons and not necessarily to try to live up to something you see in a magazine. And many of those bills are 10 years plus. Right. And I have the the, the pleasure of having Gary fly down and just <laughs> knocking me off my perch, um, which really has, you know, it, it really stabilizes the, the whole expectation and things. So I really do appreciate having someone like Gary to, 
to really, you know, kind of stabilize the the whole expectation thing. I don't know, guys. It sounds to me like he has PTSD every time I go down to visit him. <laughs> hey, Gary, some people just need tough love. I guess so. <laughs> I, I look at it as it, it's constant improvement. So, you know, he comes down, he makes a couple of comments, he gives me a couple of looks, he rolls his eyes, and then uh, he gets back in the plane, and I spend the next two weeks addressing <laughs> I'm more effective than I had hoped. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, Gary, uh, next time you need to bring your little black bag with you and you can give him a, uh, you know, an anesthetic before you lay it on him. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to need some. You know, no, he's, he's more oh. nefarious than that. He comes down with some great tools that he loans me. He goes, oh, you know, you need this because you clearly don't know what you're doing. <laughs> and then... <laughs> You know, I, I use them and then I call him up and I say, you know, you, know, you can come get your tool. And he goes, no, you're going to need them for more because you're going to have to redo what you just did. <laughs> and so um, I've got a, a, a whole hanger full of Gary tools. Oh, I can't tell you how many times I've redone parts striving for that, uh, you know, perfect part like Jeff was mentioning earlier. But uh, as a first time builder, Sonics has been awesome with uh, sending me new stuff. Uh, always looking forward to uh, oh, they- Christmas when the UPS guy shows up. <laughs> so, so do you, you obviously you're 90, 90, you, you've got a large, uh, scrap bin full of, uh, almost perfect Sonics parts. Oh, absolutely. I've done the, uh, I've done the rudder alone three times <laughs> Yeah, just from, uh, you know, stupid mistakes, but that's the, that's part of the that, learning process. I did the rudder first as like one of my first parts uh, with the tail kit and uh, screwed it up. So, you know, that's just part of the part of the learning curve. Well, let's get into it and start uh, busting Tim's chops here. I, you know, looking at some of your Facebook posts and you're talking ninety ninety, man. I think you're you're exceptionally optimistic at the point. So fill us in. What's been going on? Uh, yeah, I mean, I talked to you guys in August of seventeen. I had the tail kit mostly done and ordered the fuselage. Um, and then it just, uh, progressed from there. I did it, uh, one kit at a time, as opposed to buying the whole kit, uh, together, uh, just for financial reasons at that time. Um, came out to Oshkosh, picked up the wing kit, uh, brought it home in the trailer. Um, it's been a lot of fun. I got the wings done. Most of the fuselage is done. I still have a lot to go. I still have the cowling, um, I'm in the middle of rebuilding the Aero-V right now to upgrade it to the 2.1. I bought a used, uh, Aero-V 2002, um, that I'm going to be using the turbo on. So, uh, the team at Sonic said I had to upgrade the crank and some other stuff. So I've been enjoying tearing into that and, um, have the cowling and the windshield and the canopy. And then I got to wrap the whole thing. Uh, most of the electric is done. I'm putting the garment system in. Uh, the G3X, um, that's where all my money's gone pretty much. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, it's been, it's been a fun, almost three years. I hope to have her fly in by end of April, beginning of May, but I don't want to jinx it. So that's why I'm here. So Tim, what has been the most fun so far? The most fun, um, honestly, the wing kit, um, I, I can't say that building the spars was fun because that was actually torture and it took me a solid three months and messaging with Gary and talking to the factory. I, I um, had fun with that, but the progression of building the wings was probably one of the coolest things because you get to see it go from the spar all the way to a full wing. 
Um, that that honestly and was the election. It starts to actually look like an airplane as you start building that stuff. It's exactly. not just this box of parts. It's when I rigged. Wow, yeah. this looks like a real wing. Yeah, when I rigged the wings onto the plane in the driveway, I literally got goosebumps. I'm like, wow, this thing is actually going to fly. <laughs> That's a threshold moment <laughs> right there. Just, yeah, that was huge. And yeah. I just, I love it. But um, I, w- I would say rigging, rigging the wings is probably one of the big milestones is you get all that stuff dialed in. Yeah, finally drill it. It's a real buck pucker moment. And oh, then yeah. you go, wow, I got it. Yeah, it definitely, it was me and two other guys. Uh, the other two gentlemen had built uh, Vans aircraft, but they wanted to see how the Sonics was. And they said they couldn't believe how the structure was, that they were very impressed and everything went together, which was, you know, for a first time builder, that that was great. Um, and the other thing, you know, doing all the wiring for the electric has been fun, you know, setting up this Garmin system, uh, hopefully to power it up. Uh, oh, geez, I need to fly you out to Colorado because I, I don't like the electricals crap. Are you doing and Gary just mocks me. Tim, are you doing all of your wiring harness? Yeah, I'm doing it all myself. Uh, wow, that's, that's the tough. one downside of the Garmin system is that you have to do the entire wiring harness or you could pay Steiner a that's significant true. fee to do it for you. <laughs> but so yeah. My first question for you is how scary was it drilling those wings bars and mating them to the fuselage? I... Honestly, measured about 10 times, <laughs> uh, just going by the directions. And I was scared to death. Um, they do give you a nice little tool now. I guess with the B model kit, it's a little bit different than the A. Uh, they give you a tool that goes on the drill bit to help you keep it centered. But um, gosh, nice. yeah. that was scary. That was scary. <laughs> I was afraid yeah. I was going to screw the- it all up. The Sonics, the B model, they have completely revamped the way you do the, the rigging. And it is by far a hell of a lot uh, easier and, and more controlled than the old method, where you had to kind of use an angle drill and, oh, and yeah. it was dive tough. down in there. And you're scared to death that you're going to misdrill it. Now, the yeah. new system is really nice. Yeah, the A model is one of those Hail Mary kind of things. Please, please don't make me mess up. Yeah. The B model is a little more controlled. I mean, you still have to go through it methodically, but uh, uh, I had a guy come down from Wyoming to help me do mine because he was, uh, he's in the process of building a B model and he wanted to see the process. And uh, we had it rigged and, and drilled within, you know, a couple hours and it came out perfect on my B model. All right, yeah, so I mean, what? I I used the pins for the uh, the rear spar and the front spar, and they just slid right in with no issues. Um, although I might change over to the bolts, but we'll we'll see what happens there. But yeah, it went well. The only downside for me is I, I didn't really uh, pay attention, and uh, I fired I riveted my firewall on before drilling the the uh, the wings the, the wing spars. And, uh, I wish I wish I had just clean coated. Yeah, you just had to lean over to do it yeah um i had i had uh <laughs> the presence not to do that and so we were able to just reach in from the front yeah that comes in experience <laughs> i'll do it i'll do it right the next time <laughs> tim what do you see as the work remaining this is kind of a good tee up to you know the last mile how do you see the the things that are left to do on your project 
Uh, well, I have a I have a list in my garage of things to do. Um, some minor little electrical things for switches and stuff. And then, um, like I said, once the I get the ROV completely built up again, mounting that back onto the uh, the firewall and uh, starting on the baffles and the cowling. And then obviously the windshield and the canopy, which, you know, it sounds like it's not that much, but I'm sure it's going to take a while. <laughs> yeah. on, I found the I'll windshield on the B. <laughs> um, the canopy was really simple on the B model because uh, I've done like four of them. But the windshield was was really tricky in the fact that you had to do things in a certain sequence. And so, you know, definitely read the plans and do them in that sequence because I didn't and then it ended up biting me, but it came out okay. Yeah, I have to I have to read up on that when I get to that point, you know. John sounds a lot like my wife, which is Ukrainian and grew up in the Soviet era. To her, the thought the thought process of, of actually reading an instruction set just isn't even a fathomable option for her first that's why we have you gary is so that you can come in and say oh you should have done it this way (laughs) it's a voyage of discovery and everybody takes their own route it is it's um yeah but they're they're when i when i got to the point of doing the windshield and, and my problem was i had done a you know an a model sonic so i knew how to do it i didn't need to look at the stupid instructions no, you do. You do need to. And uh, I fought it and uh, cussed a lot, cut my hands a lot, and then finally I got it fitted properly. So uh, it's doable. Yeah, and Tim, um, you know, Gary was laughing in the background, and the reason he's laughing is because hanging the engine, doing the baffles, fitting the cowling, and doing the canopy. It's a significant chunk of work. And so, you know, just you need to acknowledge and plan enough time yes. to do all that. Yeah. It's, it's a weekend. Come on. It's a long weekend. Come on. Yeah. 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 I, I, I mean, in my head, I'm saying April. It's probably going to be August. But, you know, at least, uh, you know, build up my ego here a little bit. Yeah. I don't know, guys. <laughs> I have to say at this point, from a medical perspective uh, point of view, and Tim, you can probably back this up for me. I think the way John is talking these days, I think he has more carbon monoxide exposure than he's admitted to. <laughs> Ow! Ow! Ouch. I don't know if I want to put my nursing license on the line for that. <laughs> Come on, Tim. Step up here. Support me, buddy. As a fellow. <laughs> John, I told you. Yes, I, I know I have a lot of light. I told you a cigarette lighter and, and ashtrays in your B model not, was not, not a good not, idea. You know, for diagnosis here. I know. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's delve into this last mile. Uh, but to go, yeah, that sounds like Lark. You know, having the cowling and the, the motor mount and the windshield, it can actually go fairly quick if you don't run into snags or if you don't try to modify from the plans. But I think if you're following the plans religiously, it's going to go fairly smoothly. I'm hoping, man, I I don't need any more snacks, (laughs) but it's, it's been fun. And uh, I know I got a lot left to do and that's why I'm, I'm talking to you guys, you know? Yeah. Tim, have you, have you thrown the power to the panel yet? Uh, I have not. I've thrown power to the contactor and the, the subsystems, but not the actual avionics yet. 
So okay. don't don't want to burn anything up, you know. <clears throat> That's another scary moment, I got to tell you, especially with the kind of money that you've got involved with this thing. I, I, I empathize with you. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm actually scared to death of it, so I'm put it <laughs> off to the very last minute, you know. <laughs> yeah, Dan. Yeah, the smoke test. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so jumping into these uh, these different things. So what I thought we'd do is kind of break this down and just talk about some of the typical items that you're going to have to think about and solve in this in this last mile, and we'll just try to group them by kind of major focus area. And the first one that, that comes to my mind is there's a lot of little details inside the cockpit that are not going to appear, appear on the plan's drawing tree. So these are all the things that support your unique instrument panel and your, your, just how you're going to finish out the cockpit. So things like cockpit labels. You know you're going to need labels, and you probably have a concept on how your panel is going to look when it's all done. But there's a lot of other labels that you might need to do. Did you label your throttle quadrant? Do you have your flaps labeled? Um, if you have a brake lever and things like that. So it's a, it's a comprehensive, what do I need for cockpit labels? And maybe not just the ones that are on the instrument panel. Gary, John, any, any comment on that? I, I've seen uh, some of the pictures that Tim has done. And he's got some, as I remember correctly, Tim, some beautifully like late laser etched kind of labeling for his switches and breakers. And this guy is, is, is sparing no expense, you know, pardon the pun. Uh, but he looks like he's doing an absolutely first class job on that panel of his labeling. Oh, thanks. Gary. I appreciate it, man. Now I have a friend that has a CNC machine and, um, uh, I have a lot of time on my hands when I'm at work sometimes. And, uh, you know, draw some stuff out and drew some stuff out. And, um, yeah, no, it's, it's coming out good, but, um, there's still more to do. There's some stuff that I missed and it's hard to actually add stuff into it once you've already, you know, made your panel up. So Jeff has a good point there of making sure you have everything labeled ahead of time for what you well, need. One of the things that the DAR is going to look for is that all the, the major systems are, are labeled. So if you miss one, just have a little, you know, Cheap Sharpie. home. Uh, well, a Sharpie is good, um, <clears throat> but I have a little, uh, you know, Office Max uh, label maker that can that can punch out a little sticker label, and you just stick it on it. It doesn't have to look good; it just has to be labeled, and that'll suffice the uh, dar. Yeah, that'll get you. Later, you can come back and get it nice and clean. But yeah, anything will work. Sharpie, labeler, anything you got. Scotch tape. It doesn't make a difference. Masking tape. My guy didn't like the the whole uh, masking tape thing. He wanted a little more professional. So my little label maker worked. Label, that's all it does. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but that's a good point. The things that, you know, you just got to look at at other things beyond the panel. So is your cockpit handle, is it labeled? Because depending on the individual, uh, they might have, you know, a higher standard of, of how you label that than others. You know, a simple open and an arrow might be good for one person and they might want to see, and the next inspector might want to see something a little more elaborate. So just think through, how am I going to label the cockpit? Uh, depending on the type of trim lever that you have, is your trim label? And then some of the other things, if you have a fuel shutoff valve or something like that, that may not be right in the panel itself, did you label that stuff? Did you label the baggage capacity in your baggage compartment? You know, just stuff like that. So think about from a comprehensive front to back approach, did, did you have all of your labels anticipated and planned for it before you get out to the airport? 
And even the simple thing, like a push to talk switch, is something that's easy to overlook. Yeah. And that really does, uh, it depends on the, the DAR that's going to be looking at your, uh, your plane, but you label everything and you're going to be clean. You're going to be good. Okay, the, the next thing that comes to my mind is um, think about your communications. So you probably have your panel-mounted radio and, and the, if the harness is hooked up, and that's great and all that. But just make sure you kind of think it all the way from the radio to your headset, to your panel jacks, to the antenna, all that stuff. You want to be looking for, you know, where are your headset jacks located? Are they convenient? Can you reach them while you're in the airplane? Are you constantly going to be knocking jacks loose as you're moving around, getting in and out? Do you have them labeled? Do you have those little insulated shoulder washers on properly so you don't have a ground loop on your headset jacks? Do you have your intercom properly set up and programmed? And a lot of this stuff, you get part of it done, but until you power up the panel, you can't program your intercom. So there's there's a number of things that you just have to make sure that you, you, you work it completely through the process. You'll get most of the way through without any help, but you just got to think, what am I missing? What am I forgetting? And think about it from a system approach. Am I good to go on everything on my communication system? Gary, when you had your Sonics, what did you do for your headset jacks, and where did you stow your headset when you weren't flying? Uh, I had two sets of jacks, of course, and I, I put them underneath the panel, uh, basically as far laterally on either side as I possibly could do. So, you know, the pilot was way to the left, and the co-pilot was way to the right. Um, <clears throat> I, you know, I did not have any great place uh to, to hang my headset, for example, uh, I ended up just basically just throwing it up on top of the dash, which can be good and bad, of course. Uh, on my, my latest iteration of, of aircraft building, uh, I have my jacks more centrally located out along the bottom of a pedestal. And I actually built a hanger behind my head that I could hang up two sets of headphones. And so there, everything's out of the way. I don't have to worry about scratching my window shield and, and just throwing things uh, kind of lackadaisically up on top of the uh, glare shield uh, to get them in and out of the way. Uh, the Sonics is a little bit tougher to do, uh, but yeah, I didn't unfortunately have a hanger in, in the Sonics to, to do the head jacks, but uh, just way out to the side for the jacks. I, rather, I, I don't like having a lot of things behind me trying to reach around and adjust something in flight if I need to. I, I know there are some people who will do... Uh, Headphone jacks, for example, in the turtle decks, uh, you know, those those bulkheads there at the turtle deck uh, by the baggage area. Again, for me, that, that presents a potential problem trying to reach around and turn around and distract yourself uh, during a phase of flight that I might not necessarily want to do in hindsight. Yeah, Gary, um, there are pros and cons to where you locate your jacks, but something that's not easy to think about until you've actually had some firsthand experience is you're going to be taking friends and family. You're going to be giving young Ingalls rides and you're going to have people that are, that are not familiar with your particular airplane or really any airplane at all. And so you got to kind of put yourself in the position of someone brand new going on a ride. They jump in your airplane. Are they going to bang a headset jack with their leg as they're getting out? Are they going to toss your, the headset up on the panel and scratch the inside of your canopy? Just think about it from that perspective and try to come up with a, a, an easy logical flow jacks that don't get snagged on things someplace to hang them or maybe just a part of your briefing for that young eagles flight like hey kid 
this is what you need to do and can we get your headset? I'm going to hang it here. You know, that kind of stuff. But think about it from the new person perspective also. You know, that's a, a good point that uh, I didn't really think about. But uh, unfortunately, I, I uh, chose to put my head jacks uh, behind uh, our head. Uh, the B model is nice in that you have that little flat surface where the turtle deck meets uh, the bottom there. And it gave a nice spot to put the headphone jacks. But I didn't really think about the whole in-flight process. But, well, that's that's where mine is right now. But I've seen some other other guys have used the, the turtle deck as, as an option, too. Tim, I put mine in my B model exactly where you did. Um, on that little flat vertical on the turtle deck. Um, wherever you put them, it's not going to be optimal. But uh, having... My previous ones were on top of my uh, glare shield, and they worked pretty good, except for the fact that, you know, they're kind of up on top of the glare shield. But they did definitely keep out of the way of people banging into them. So um, wherever you put them, there's going to be a compromise. Just kind of – and you, you won't like them, and you're going to want to move them, but you won't. So, Okay, and then moving on, um, you have – a number of different items of upholstery to kind of finish things out. So whether you make your own upholstery or you buy one of those provided Sonics upholstery kits, but you have things like just your, your seat bottom and your seat back cushions, there's those, but your seat belts, how are you going to, how are you going to route them? Are you using the stock seat belts that Sonics sold at one time, or did you source aftermarket seat belts? Um, make sure that that kind of stuff goes in early enough so that if there's a slight interference problem or something that just needs to be worked out, you're not waiting until that night before the DAR is coming to try to get those little details. And then other little custom touches, you might just start thinking about, are you going to make stick boots? Do you want a fancy little closeout panel to, to close out the aft turtle deck to keep you know the, the heat in the cockpit? Some of those little finishing touches you can start thinking about. And maybe you decide to defer it till later, but you can start kind of planning out what you think you might want to do down the road as well. Gary, was there anything uh, upholstery-wise that you did not do right away, but after flying for a couple of years, you came back and said, yeah, this is something I, I, probably, I probably, you know, really should have done this up front because now that I have it, I wouldn't give it up. You know, the biggest thing for me, and of course, this is all going to be individualized, is with in the A model that I had, it was very flat back to it, a very flat seat to it. And I really, really enjoyed having a lumbar support. And I, I basically had a, a simple pillow, basically, uh, that I could use as a lumbar support in this thing. That had I had thought about it again, and I was doing new upholstery for, for Sonics, particularly for the A model, and I suspect for the B model as well, is I would just have something already built in for lumbar support. For long cross-country trips, you're going to really thank yourself. Yeah, th there's always going to be a certain tension. Do I just kind of do it down and dirty and simple and get it flying and maybe come back and readdress it later? Or do I anticipate, how am I going to want to fly and operate this thing long-term? And do I just do that right from the start? Upholstery is one of those things where it's really kind of inconvenient to go back and redo it. So you might spend some time checking out other people's airplanes, thinking about how, you know, your personal preferences come into play. And that's one of those areas where it might make a little more sense to slow down, think a little harder about it, and try to get it closer to perfect the first time around. Yeah, the only other thing I might think about, and, and one of these came kind of standard in the Sonics 
upholstery kit that I got at the time is some sidewall pockets, uh, especially for those, 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 the side from the seat towards the dash panel, that kind of thing, is to have some additional pockets in there because you need those things. You can stick a handheld transceiver in there, your sunglasses, your pens, you know, whatever you might happen to need and carry along the lines. But those kind of simple little things, a little couple extra pockets there, or perhaps down on the flat areas uh, and forward of the seat uh, bench area, if there's room between those and the torque tubes. Um, those things just paid a world of dividends to you. Uh, there's no real weight and, and balance penalty to it. And it goes a great long and kind of thing to grab and get your paws on uh, during cross-country flights. Yeah, as many pockets and cup holders and little niches that you can stash away someplace, all that's going to make it uh, easier, especially when you're getting out and going somewhere. Well, you know, one of my my opinion is if you're going to go with if you're going with the stock Sonics uh, in, interior, I would put that in, you know, while you're doing all your uh, DAR inspection and stuff. But if you're going to go with the custom interior, simple pad down and not worry about it. Get the flight testing done, and then you can figure out what you want to do with an interior, you know, during your phase one flight testing. Yeah, and there is some merit to that because um, you get a little bit more experience, and you're going to start to figure out the things that are more important to you. So, yeah, there, there there's some there's some benefits to going, you know, that way or maybe thinking about it a little more up front and trying to anticipate what you're going to want. But um, I what I hate to see is – you you spend a bunch of time and effort, and you haven't really sort of thought it out, haven't really refined it, and now you feel like you're kind of stuck. You don't really want to go through the the rework and the expense of redoing your interior because you kind of feel like you got all this sunk cost into it. So if you're not sure what you want, maybe you do like John is suggesting, and you just go really, really simple until you really figure it out, or you try to get it perfect the first time around. Yeah, an interior is not... You know, you don't have to define your interior to get your airworthiness. Not at all. Yeah, it's good to know. I'm still still working on that. But like I said, if you're going to go with a Sonic stock interior, then go ahead and do it because you're not going to change it. But if you're going to go with a custom, hold off because it's going to be it's going to be defined by your needs and not your wants. My only question, John, is you you did the uh, the B model too. Um, did you use the plastic that that came with the kit, um, or did you do something more custom for the side panels where the seat is? Oh no, I used absolutely all the uh, the interior panels that the B model comes with. Okay. So yeah, they're velcroed right in, and they look great, and they, uh, it really finishes out the the cockpit of the B model. Okay, and then moving down from the upholstery, uh, don't forget about your brakes. So probably you installed the brakes, you hooked everything up, maybe you did a quick little function test, and then they sat. And you never really got a chance to really test them out because it's been in the garage the whole time. But at some point, you're going to need to go back and touch that system again. If you have cable brakes, you're going to make sure that after the cable's been installed, it doesn't need to be retensioned. If you have hydraulic brakes, that you're holding pressure properly and they don't need to be rebled. And I'd say it's an extremely common thing that the very first time that you attempt to bleed these brakes, it doesn't go perfectly. There's bubbles trapped, bubbles trapped in the system that are going to take a little bit to kind of work their way out. So just anticipate that at some point, either as part of 
the final assembly, or or really you can do it before you take the plane out, you need to go back and, and turn your tension back to your brakes and make sure they're adjusted and ready. Because oftentimes they, they're kind of overlooked in that, that last little finish up period. Okay, guys, anything else on the interior that comes to mind? You'll get more things. We've talked about previously things about sunscreens and that kind of stuff. And, you know, that can all come later on. Yeah, I think if we focus on, on, on getting your plane ready for first flight, um, minimalist is best. Um, you can tweak it later as you, as you feel you needed to have that pocket over here or something to hold your headset controller, you know, whatever. But um, don't overthink it before first flight because you're really just going to need, you know, the basic things in, in, in the interior. It's a lot just to get the plane flying. Okay, well, I guess next up is the, the process of final assembly. And really, final assembly cannot start uh, until you take the airplane to the airport. So what are, what are the kind of the, the known good ways to get it out of the garage and into the hangar? Well, I took the easy way. I called a, a flatbed tow truck and said, come get this thing and take it to the hangar for me. <clears throat> you know, it did two things that saved me from having to try to find a trailer and mount everything on the trailer and lash it down. <clears throat> and I'm hoping secondarily, perhaps, you know, had the had, had the fuselage or wings actually flown off, flown off of the flatbed truck up, uh, flatbed truck, that perhaps there might be some insurance there that would help us to uh, to mitigate some of the expenses. Right. Yeah. If it costs you a hundred bucks for the flatbed to, to haul it out to the airport, you know, that's about two fill ups at the fuel pump. In the grand scheme of your flying career, that is not going to break the bank. Nope. Okay. Um, yeah, you can borrow a trailer. You know, something like a 16-foot a flatbed car hauler trailer works pretty well. If you do that, you just got to think about, am I going to try to do this in one load? And does that mean I need to stack the wings in a certain way and uh, kind of slide them underneath the tail? Or do I build a wing cradle? Or do I just take them in multiple lifts? And I guess... Don't look past the sort of low-tech brute force method, which is if you can't figure out a nifty way to make all the pieces jigsaw together on a trailer, then don't. Take the fuselage in one turn and come back and put the wings. And if you have to take one wing with an old comforter thrown on there and a couple of ratchet straps, okay, so it takes you a little bit longer to make that round trip two or three times. Don't overthink it. Just get it done. And if low-tech easy is the way, then do it. All right, so when you get it to the hangar, what else kind of comes up in that final assembly stage? John, what, what are the things that you start thinking of as the plane is coming together, um, you know, in the hangar for the first time? Well, I think you need to have a – you're starting to bond. You really do need to have a checklist. And so when you put those wings back into the, the fuselage for the final time – you need to go either through the plans and because you've already done it, you, you did it in, in your garage. Now you're going to do it in the hangar. Make sure that you're doing everything. You know, you're getting the right <clears throat> bolts in, you're getting the right hardware connected again. You're going back through because you've already checked it off on your, your build list on the, uh, the plans. And so you're going back through and you're going, okay, I got that. I got that. I got that. I'm done, 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 done connected up the control rods, all that kind of stuff. Um, 
so it, it's basically you're redoing everything you've done before. You just have to make sure you did it again. Well, guys, I have a, I have another part to add to this. What you really need is a pup of a couple of really good buddies. Uh, you, you can't do these things by yourself. You know, I was fortunate enough. John lived, lived fairly close to me, and you know, he helped me on my last escapade, especially when I had a a broken knee at the time. So he came up as well as some other people. He sent his son up to help me. And, you know, you get three or four other people that can actually help you manhandle some of these things like the wings. Cause now is not the time when you want to try to go, we'll say cheap or, or, or low labor costs. Not that I had to pay him anything, but you want a lot of extra hands on here as you're, as you're manhandling these huge pieces. Cause the worst thing in the world is to drop a wing at the last second and I'll fess up. It happened to me because I tried to do it with, with too little help, just to expedite the process, and it ended up costing me. Yeah, that's right. Uh, this is a chance to hit up those airport flying buddies that you're going to be getting to know even better. Uh, chapter members, whatever, friends from work, people that you know you can talk them into coming out and giving you a hand in exchange for a flight down the road, or just uh, you know bribe them with beer money or something. I don't know, but yeah, you want to go get those friends. I don't think you need to bribe them. You're just basically saying, look, I need a couple of extra hands. And most aviators are more than willing to say, tell me what you want me to do. I will follow your instructions. They love working with airplanes. Yeah, that's good. Well, John, you mentioned um, hooking up controls and things like that. And this is one area where um, you can overlook some of these little details. Like you talked about, you did a lot of this stuff when, when you were assembling the control mechanisms the first times because you're following the plans, but then you stopped and you took it apart and you put it on a shelf and maybe it only partially got reassembled. So things like, did that, did that bell crank get tightened down? Did the cotter pin go in properly? Do you have your rod ends position properly or were they just kind of spun on there just a couple of turns because you're going to come back to it and settle that later but you forgot and now it's not quite done you know jam nuts are tight on there did you um did you get the right hardware you know it, it needs a it needs some sort of lock fastener but you just threw something on there you threw an old nut that was laying around just to keep it from rattling around so you really got to go through your entire control system and look at everything and what you're really looking for is is it correct and don't just necessarily see a bolt and a nut and, and think, okay, yeah, it must be good because I can see it's done. You got to really challenge that and say, is this the right hardware? Is it installed correctly? Did I miss anything? Do I need to go back and reinspect it or whatever? Well, well let me give you a little, little story with my B model conversion. Okay. I had the wings off. I had, had to do all the new rigging and all that. I rigged it all. I, uh, Measured my control surfaces and everything. Had, had to take it all apart again, of course, because you, you take everything apart three or four times. When I put it back, back together again, I didn't remeasure my control throws because it looked good. I mean, it was good when I did it before. During my test flights, during my phase one again, um, I was getting a really heavy uh, control throws. So I said, this is not right. Brought the plane back down, and I was way out of rig. And it was because the one of the control rods had had opened up, and it was just out of rig. So I've, I've corrected it, and everything is correct again. But, yeah, you got to re- remeasure everything. 
when you put a final final assembly again. Yeah. Um, don't don't assume that a previous rigging is good. Mr. Tim, uh, do you have any tubes of torque seal? Uh, yes, I've been using you've been using that uh, religiously, actually. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for things that John's talking about, is absolutely correct. You know, as you go, things taking things on, putting back on, taking them off, putting them back on. When you when you finally decide that you're actually going to do something, and this is where it needs to be, just put your torque seal on it. That way, it kind of gives you another visual check that this is a checklist item that you've already completed, and it should be good. It's a great tip. Been using it mostly on the Aerovy, uh, reassembling it, but um, I'll definitely use it on the aircraft more too. Yes, once everything's finalized up. All your bowls, your landing gears, your engine mounts, uh, the list kind of goes on and on. But anything that you're concerned about is, did I properly torque it or not? Torque seal it and you don't have to worry about memory. I, I understand you're younger than I am, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it, it will still come to bite you after a period of time. Absolutely. And Tim, you don't have Gary to come by and go, did you torque seal that? Well, I hope no. I hope soon. He says he's moving to Colorado. I I will, but no, he goes, no, if you, if it's torqued and you're happy with it, you torque seal it. Come on. Sounds good. Yeah. I have have uh, that. I have another two years before uh, I can harass Gary. (laughs) (laughs) You know, right up there with rigging the controls. um, Now's a good time to go through and then loop everything. When it's in the garage and you're still sanding on the cowl and dust is going everywhere, you kind of want to leave everything dry so that you don't glob it on there and make a big mess. But at some point, you know, now you got to get it ready to fly. That might be going around with either some lithium grease in certain areas, especially where the the, the push rod goes through those vertical channel supports going to the elevator. So those things need to be greased. And then you need to take your can of LPS or whatever else you're using on your hinges and other pivot points and just go in there and give them a quick spurt. And um, a lot of that stuff is probably still relatively dry from sitting in the garage for the last couple of years. Okay, and uh, after you get the wings on and stuff like that, there are a number of little things that you probably have left either clecoed in place or possibly just omitted because, you know, you want access and you're doing some last minute things. And these are things like maybe the tail tips or the wing tips. You know, they're fiberglass, and so you want to keep them out of the way so they don't get damaged while you're moving, or you might need to reach in there and work on a wiring and a wing or, you know, whatever the case may be. But at some point, you need to finish all that up, so make sure you get that stuff done. And then, of course, if you're like most builders, you have left the belly skin clecoed on, and so at some point, it's going to be time to pop some rivets on that belly skin and close that up for good. Well, Tim, what, what kind of things are you anticipating that you, you have any questions about here in the very, very near future? Um, I, well, you know, being that it's my first time, I don't know really what to expect with the DAR um, in terms of what I should have together and what should I keep um, apart. I don't know if they rip apart the interior or not. And um, and honestly, the, the paperwork, too, uh, just being a new new to this whole process that uh, – that's kind of daunting too. I have the plane registered, but it's you know figuring out all the calculations and all that stuff. All uh, right. Well, that's that's what seems confusing to me at least for uh, at this the point. Suggestion to start with is to get the EAA Experimental Aircraft Registration Kit if you've not done so. 
Do you, have you have you seen that kid? Yeah, Do you have? Yeah, I have. Uh, yeah, they have. Uh, they have a good kid. It gives with the sticker and uh, the plate and all that stuff too. Yeah. Okay. Um, so that's a great kit to start with. Be careful though. And I, I know that my last iteration they had some outdated forms. And even though you get that kit from EAA, be sure to really check closely those foot the footnotes in the forms and make sure they are the current form because that will do you in if it's not. Um, so that, that will get you through most of the paperwork. When you contact a DAR, uh, the ones I use, for example, they will actually send you a list of items that they want you to have available and, and ready for inspection. So much of that kind of stuff will come from the DAR as far as the paperwork issues and what he's looking for, uh, your, okay. his, your suggested outline for your, uh, your operating limitations, in other words, the geographical area that you plan to do your phase one test flight, uh, that will be pretty much issued and, and determined by the DAR. Uh, you could certainly ask for whatever geographical area that you want. He may or may not give it to you uh, based on what some of the local FISDO regulations and procedures might be, but you, that's, that stuff is kind of negotiated. Uh, as far as the actual inspection itself, you have to have the cowling off, of course, have your inspection plates open. So anything that's control linkages, for example, um, that, that would be a typical inspection spot for an annual inspection is the way to look at it. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah. Gary, you've gone through a couple different DARs. I've, I've gone through one and I've, I've watched him do several. So I think every DAR is different on, on what they're, they're specifically interested in. The DAR that I, I'm experienced with was purely interested in making sure your paperwork was correct. Yes. You had everything correct. Um, he spent the majority of the time going through that to make sure your build log was good. Um, you know, everything was, was lined up. And then he spent maybe 15 minutes looking over the airplane. Uh, which I was a little disappointed because, like, I, I thought this was supposed to be an inspection, but it was more of an inspection on your legality than it was on the aircraft. Yeah, if the aircraft looks like an aircraft, they kick the tires. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, that in possibly might be the extent of it. It all depends. Uh, some are, are, are pretty pretty thorough. Yeah. I had one that got on the, the creeper underneath the wings and started looking at the bell cranks and asking <coughs> questions and so forth and so forth. Uh, so that is individualized, and you can't really do much about it. Uh, you know, just have your paperwork uh, assigned, make yeah. sure the dates on the forms are correct, follow to the letter the EA kit, because I think it's very, very good, uh, and whatever additional documentation he wants. And I don't think you're going to have any, any problems. It's not like you have to do static run-ups or, or demonstrate, you know, equipment's running. He might ask you to turn the panel on, uh, but, you know, that's not... Yeah. Not the, the part is is whether it's airworthy or not. No. Yeah, mine wanted to see that I had all the instruments operational. So he wanted me to power up the panel, and he looked in the cockpit and he goes, "Okay, you have all of the necessary VFR gauges, and they're operating." And then the only other thing he really was interested in is he wanted me to taxi the plane to verify the brakes worked. Now, see, neither one of the times that I have actually operated the aircraft. But again, that's yeah. individualized. And I, that's what I'm trying to say is it, it all depends on the DAR. Mine was more interested in, can you stop the airplane? Okay. Yeah, I can stop it. 
So he said, you know, I kind of called him out on it. I said, so you're really not, you know, giving me an airworthiness because you didn't really look at whether this airplane can fly. He goes, no, that's up to you. Um, <laughs> yeah. oh, but boy. I want to make sure that you're not going to run into the old lady at the end of the runway. You know, it's like, okay. That makes sense. Is there an advantage to going with the DAR versus uh, going through the FISDO itself? Well, from what we understand, it's very rare these days you get a FISDO guy that's willing to even do it. Okay. Tim, the advantage is if the FISDO is not really in the mode of doing amateur built inspections, they're going to refer you to a DAR. Or if they're only a little bit in the mode, they're going to say, yeah, we'll get to you eventually, but you're going to have to be willing to wait until it fits into our schedule. And that's where the advantage might be. I don't want to wait two months for the FISDO. I'll just hire a DAR and he'll be out here next week. And you're really rolling the dice on what you're going to get. You can get a real go-getter that just says, I am, you know, th this is the 737 Max and I am not going to let this thing get away from me. <laughs> or you're going to get a guy that just rolls it over and says, oh, I don't care. Well, John, Give me I, money. Know, I, I haven't heard enough people that actually had a FISDO guy inspect their airplane to know, you know, how strict they are. I, I suspect they're pretty much like the DARS. The DARS go through the FISDO training. And I think pretty much they're, I, I would, I would probably bet you a quarter that they're looking at the paperwork. Yeah. I, Gary, I've had four inspections and one of those four with the FISDO came out with a new DAR and they did a, basically a on the job training inspection with that new DAR. And it's all the same thing. And, and if you look at the guidance that the FISDO will give a new DAR, basically they're, it's kind of like a, um, a Czech airman doing a, a check ride. There are a number of things that just have to be right. Like you may not issue the certificate unless these are done correctly. And those are all like the paperwork things. So that's why they're such a stickler on that, because they are prohibited from giving that pink slip if it's not correct. So they want to make sure that it's correct. They don't want to come back. They don't want you to, to not get your inspection. That's what you're there for. And then the, the second piece of that is, oh, and by the way, if in your professional opinion, there's something wrong that really seriously calls the safety of this airplane into question, then you probably ought to, you know, maybe think about not giving them the pink slip. But, but that's a very subjective type thing. So you get someone who is, you know, very experienced in experimental airplanes. Maybe they're an RV specialist or something like that. They know all the common gotchas. They do it because in their professional experience and judgment, uh, they kind of know what they're looking for. And so they're going to try to give you your money's worth and uh, get a good inspection. But again, that's the subjective piece of it that every individual person is going to bring to the inspection. And there is no clear cut guidance on, on how deep they need to look. You know, they literally can check the paperwork and kick the tires because, like Gary said, at the end of the day, it is the builder who certifies in your logbook that the plane is in a condition for safe inspection. Not just on the day you get your pink slip, but every year when you do your condition inspection, somebody has to sign off and it's not the FAA. It's experimental aviation. So that's that it, it's a lot of latitude, but it's a lot of responsibility. Yeah. Tim, I want to back up just a little bit, just in case people are not familiar with the EAA registration packet or what the process is, and just kind of cover the, the main big steps. So if you look at all the things you have to do, it really falls into, into four areas. So the first step in the process is you got to reserve your end number. And you can go online, you can get just a randomly assigned end number, or you can request a special end number based on what's available. So go do that. You have to get an end number reserved before you can do the second step, which is to apply for a registration. And so you, you get online, you need to get the, uh, 
the various forms. So for an amateur built experimental, you have to have the regulation form, the 8050-1. And it used to be that that was only available in hard copy form. So you had to write the FISDO and say, hey, can you mail me a copy? I think maybe, and don't you have to double check this. I think they were they were going to or have gone to an electronic form that doesn't have that carbon backup copy. And that no, is, I believe everything is downloadable as a PDF. Yeah, yeah that's, that's that's kind of what I thought I remembered, but I'm not I'm just going to have to leave you, you guys to check that out for yourself. But you need the the affidavit of ownership and that is something that, you know, you're going to have to fill out as the as the owner. You need the bill of sale and that documents the the entire chain from the original builder or the kit manufacturer to you. And if there is an intermediate builder in there, then it has to go from the kit manufacturer to that first builder and then over to you. And so you might have to do a little bit of legwork to get the signatures for that. Um, and you submit all that with your $5 or, or I think that's what it is, still $5. And you submit that registration packet to the FAA and then they're going to process it and they're going to enter you into the database as now you have a registered airplane. It has your end number on it. It has your builder details. Now you have a registration and that's where that carbon copy back page of the registration form was your temporary registration. Now they just mail you one. You get it, you know, a week later. Once you have the airplane registered, then you can go on to the third step of the process, which is to actually submit your application for the airworthiness certificate. And there's a number of things that go into that application. The first part of that is there's an actual airworthiness certificate application form, and that's an 8130-6. And that's where you actually say, I want to register this airplane. Um, you have to have a statement of amateur built eligibility, and that's a notarized form. So you download it, you fill it out, you say, yeah, I promise that I'm, you know, I did this. I didn't pay someone to build my airplane, all that stuff. You get it notarized at your local credit union for free. And then you, you know, you have that. You need your three view aircraft diagram and your weight and balance. And this might be this might be your preliminary weight and balance, especially if you start this process a few months early. You may not have the final, final weight and balance, but that's okay. Preliminary is, is good enough to get it going. And then you have this thing that they refer to as a program letter, where you write the FAA and you say, Dear FISDO, here's what I want to do. I want to register my airplane. I want operating limitations with, you know, night, night IFR and aerobatics and all those other things that you answer. And I want to fly it out of this airport. I request a flight test area of this. You just spell it all out in your program letter and you send that as part of the packet. The FISDO gets and all this. Go fast. I want a go fast rating. <laughs> right, right. So they get all this and then now they have enough. They have everything they need to either delegate it to a DAR, in which case they have a, a number of DARs that they work with that are delegates in their area. And they might just forward the packet over to them. They just literally put it in a new envelope and mail it off to John Doe and say, hey, you know, here's a guy that wants an inspection. You know, he's all yours. Or they'll respond to you and say, dear Tim, thanks for sending us your letter. We have your packet. We suggest you call John Doe as a, as a DAR and uh, work it out with him. And we're going to delegate your case over to him. But um, they won't they won't do anything until they get that in hand. And if you contact a DAR directly, they can help you with this, but the process is still the same. You still got to submit those documents to the FISDO. And then the last step, once that's done, the last step in, in the whole process is, you know, the DAR is going to come out and actually do the inspection. That, that's kind of a separate thing. But the last step is if you want to do the repairman certificate and everybody has to do the north-south head nod, yes, I'm going to do the repairman certificate. And that is a separate action after the airworthiness has been granted 
where you have to apply to the FISDO or the MIDO for an airworthiness or for a, a repairman certificate rating to be added on to your license. And so just like trying to do any other license or rating application, you have to submit an 8610-2, which is an air, airman rating application. And you're going to have to go into the FISDO. You have to make an appointment. You got to appear in person. You got to show them your ID and all that. And they're actually going to process it just like you were a student pilot or you're trying to go for a check ride or something like that. You have to, you have to do that at the FISDO because it's a rating applied to your license. And then they're going to ask you some questions like, do you pretty promise that you actually built the airplane and, you know, and we, we can give it to you. Go ahead, Gary. Yeah, I actually, I just spoke with someone today in a different part of the country. And his DAR was actually able to submit the request for the repairman certificate, and, and I know that kind of it kind of varies. So it there's, does. There's potential that it could be regionally related. The DAR may or may not be able to help you with that aspect. Yeah, the first two times um, the DAR submitted the airworthiness or the repairman repairman certificate rating to the FISDO on my behalf, and it just came, and I didn't have to do anything. And then the last two, the, the FISDO said, "No, you got to come in." And, um, and we'll do it in-house. And that was, um, that was just, I don't know, four or five years ago. And I do believe you're correct, Gary. I think different FISDOs kind of have different SOPs on how they do this. And so just the your guard, FISDO, I, had to, I had to go in person after the aircraft was officially registered in the database as having received his error with a certificate. And I went to the FISDO to apply for the repairment certificate. But right. I, I believe it may be regionally uh, some differences. It's, it's kind of like the TSA. I mean, you go into one airport, you're going to get a different set of scrutiny than you are in a different airport. Um, like Gary, I had to go make an appointment, go visit with a, the FA, the FISDO, and explain to them why I needed my repairment certificate. Um, it was not automatic. And just to, sorry to interject here, but um, what what time what timeline are you guys looking at? Um, like, I already have my plane registered, um, but when should I be submitting this paperwork if I'm looking at maybe a late spring, early summer, uh, maybe yeah. fall? Who knows at this yeah, point? Yeah, you, um, you need you need at least a couple of months from the day you want to do your inspection. You got to mail your stuff off of your airworthiness application. You got to do that a couple of months in advance because it'll take the FAA just a week or two to get your mail and to open it and to delegate it and all that. So a minimum of two months before you want to actually do the inspection, you need to be sending that packet for your airworthiness certificate to the FISDO. And you want to start this whole process four to six months before that inspection date. Okay. Well, Tim, um, Jeff is pretty close. You do, you do need quite a bit of, of lead time on this. But again, check locally and see what's going on. If you're really using the FISDO, if you're going to use a DAR, uh, you may actually end up just sending everything to the DAR, and he may actually, you know, know where to send it and get it up processed. And that be, you know, you may be getting more of your money's worth if you have to do the DAR that way. I um, I did it in 2013, <clears throat> and I I only worked through the DAR, so I never sent anything to the F FAA besides my registration. Um, so it, I think it's all, I would contact a DAR and ask them what they want you to do. If you're going to use a DAR, if you're going to use the FAA, obviously you have to send it all to the FAA. But yeah, right. you know, what's another good thing about this month or two months, say I'm anticipating having my aircraft ready for inspection is when you're really pretty close and, and you've got, and you know, that deadline's coming up, 
it's really going to stop you from doing that little those little things. Say, I think I can do this slightly better. And you got to say, no, I have to finish this and get this ready for inspection. And so, because most of us, towards the end of this end of the project, we keep finding little things we want to do here and there. And I want to wait and do this and do this. And the months drag on and on and on. So once you contact the DAR, and he says, yes, I have scheduled you a spot. <laughs> you are going to be highly motivated to get the rest of this stuff done. And, and worry about the fine tuning a little bit later on. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm, you I'm need to make a decision. Right you need to make a decision. Is this going to stop me from flying or not? And if you're trying to push to get the fly, push all that stuff down downstream. You have plenty of time after you get your airworthiness and that first flight to deal with, oh, I don't like the way the interior is, or, or I don't like. Um, you know, I'm going to move my headset position because it's just it's it, it's impinging my passenger. Well, you're not going to have a passenger for 40 hours, so don't worry right. about it. Yeah, I'm guilty of that right now, nitpicking little things and finding things wrong that I want to redo. And I just got to be a little up, bit. Yeah, I have to be disappointed. end up 10 years out <laughs> before you finally get everything perfect, and then it's still going to be the same thing. Yeah, I did my panel three or four times in the Sonics, Tim. <laughs> So, guys, I want to make one just one more pass through on the repairman certificate. So, if you buy the the kit directly from Sonics and you're the only owner, everything's real simple. There's there's no there's no doubt as to how it's gonna all gonna go. But if you buy a secondhand kit, the the initial builder may have done things that kind of box you in a little bit. So, best case scenario, you buy a used kit off of Barnes Drivers. And the original builder hasn't done anything. They haven't reserved an end number. They haven't submitted um, a registration application. They haven't done anything. And so you can do all that right from scratch, just as if you bought it from Sonics. You just need to document with a bill of sale that it went from Sonics to Builder 1 over to you. If the builder, the original builder, got further down this process, they got super excited, they reserved a custom end number, and they registered it. And then they stalled out and sold the project at that point. Now there's a registration on that airplane with that serial number. Now you have you have to make a choice. You have to either just roll with that registration and have it changed over, or you have to try to do a what I want to do an air quote around like a workaround. You know, oh, I'm not buying that airplane anymore. I'm buying airplane parts so that it's now my airplane. You know that kind of stuff. But you have to make a choice. Do I just roll with the original registration that the builder started or do I do a workaround? And if that builder, if you roll with the original registration on that registration, there is potentially um, the builder's name that is going to end up as the builder of the airplane. Now, this is the same type of thing that if you bought it and it was, you know, it, the, it had a airworthiness inspection issued and then maybe the builder passed away and never actually flew it. If there is a builder's name in the FAA data plate or database and it's on the data plate of your airplane now, that is the builder of the airplane in the FAA's eyes. And if you are not the builder of the airplane, and I'm using that in kind of like quotes builder in the FAA sense of the airplane, they won't issue you the repairman certificate. So there's something to be said for waiting until you're closer to the end before you register the airplane and you get an official builder's name entered into the database because then that can transfer off to to the next person 
that was a classic case with Mike Niedenthal. Um, he picked up his kit from uh, an estate. Luckily, the, uh, the guy never had registered it. And so Mike was able to register it as his. And he was the builder of choice. Right. And if you are the builder, they won't blink an eyelash at, at issuing the repairman certificate in, in most cases on something like a Sonics. Right. Now, if it's an RV, they get a little bit twitchier with RVs because there's been a history of uh, professional builders uh, building RVs and and selling them to uh, to fairly wealthy people that then go in for their repairman certificate and they never even, you know, they never pulled a rivet. Tim, what's your next question about aside from DARS then? Well, Gary, before we before we move on, let's go back to the actual inspection. I have just a few a few things I wanna um, I wanna add on to what you guys already talked about. And John, you said, you know, you dealt exclusively with the DAR and uh, to talk to them and kind of see what they expect. That is probably really good advice because of how varied DARs are. You know, you want to talk to this person before they show up and you want to ask them those questions like, hey, what? Do, how is this thing going to go? What are you expecting to see when I get there? You know, what paperwork are you checking and what are the common errors? And in what state do you want the airplane for your inspection? Because what you don't want is day of inspection, he rolls up and you find some little thing that you can't, you can't resolve on the spot. Now, most DARs, they're, they're going to work with you. These guys are not, they're not check airmen. They're not going to fail you and then, you know, roll off on you. But you don't want to be scrambling to try to, you know, take care of some little thing. And I'll use N numbers as a good example. You know, the FARs, they give you specs on exactly what a legal N number is. We're talking font and spacing and size and position on the airplane. And some DARs, yeah, they're very attentive. You know, they're going to get out the ruler and they're going to measure all that to make sure that that is a legal end number graphic on your airplane. Other DARs, they may not. But it really sucks to have a nice, what you think is a nicely prepared end number decal that doesn't actually meet the specs. And that's on your DARs hit list of pet peeves. And he says, oh, no, I can't issue it. You know, you got to scrape that thing off and you know, I'm not, I'm not going to sign it because you didn't meet the, the requirement. It's an absolute, you know, fist pound requirement. You want to hammer those things out in advance so you kind of know what your guy is wanting to see when he gets there. The other thing is don't forget about your logbooks. So when the DAR is doing the paperwork inspection, part of that paperwork is he's going to inspect your aircraft logbooks. And he's going to expect to see either three separate logbooks for your airframe, your engine, and your propeller, or sections of a logbook that address each of those different functions. And, you know, they're probably going to say it's best just to have three separate logbooks. That's kind of the traditional way of doing things. Whatever you do is up to you. But you need to be able to show that, you know, the required logbook entries have been made in the logbook. And you can ask him about that. Hey, what do I need to make sure is in my logbook before you show up? And he's going to tell you, oh, you need to make sure that you have a condition inspection done and performed and annotated in the logbook. And it's just like every other condition inspection you're going to do. You say, you know, I, I've inspected this aircraft in accordance with blah, 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 blah. And, uh, and I find it in a safe, in a condition for safe operation. That's going to be entered into your logbook. You're going to have your transponder check. You're going to have your pedostatic system check. Um, your yeah. ELT entry. Jeff, I understand what you're saying, but you know, 
And I, and I had that happen in my last one too. I mean, all you need is a pen if he finds something he wants in there that's not necessarily there. It's it's a pretty simple matter to say, you know, I, okay, what do you want me to scribble this thing and scribble it and sign it? Um, that's 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 fairly easy to do too. And there's always going to be some little thing that he may necessarily want to see. Right, but these are the types of questions that you can ask in a phone call before he comes out to avoid those little surprises, you know, day of. And and most stars, I think, are going to be extremely accommodating. They're going to help you with this process, but we're looking for ways to make it as smooth and efficient as possible. And I think most of us yeah. spelled out. Well, the DAR that I worked with was not adversarial. He was very helpful. He just wanted to make sure that we were doing everything legal. Yeah, that's all it is. So now, Tim, what's next on your list? Well, just touching on what Jeff was saying, uh, you know, the whole transponder check and pedostatic check and um, ensuring the weight and balance is correct, it's, it seems a little... Um, Seems a little daunting at times to to make sure everything is done correctly in 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 effort to get get the plane in the air. Just um, use that EA checklist. I don't think you're going to go wrong with it. I really don't. And if there's something extra he thinks or he wants a little different verbiage or a little added verbiage, you're going to have your trusty little big pen next to you anyway, and you'll just scribble it in and say, "Is that right, sir?" And he'll say, "Yes, sir," and then you sign him with the check. Awesome. Yeah, but Tim, now that you know, you know, kind of what the things are, um, you can do a little bit of research ahead of time and you can find out, you know, what is the language that I need to put in there when I do the ELT check? You do a little bit of research and you find out, oh, it's really, really simple. You just, uh, you know, you checked it for function, you record the battery expiration date and the date it was installed, and uh, that's pretty much it. It's not hard, but until you kind of go through the process once, it's a big unknown. And so this kind of just gets it on your radar so you can start checking these things off as you go. Your, your pedostatic check, it could be as simple as, you know, and there's a number of sport aviation articles on how to do this. As simple as you take some fuel tubing, some flexible fuel tubing, you slip it over your pedo tube, and you just sort of slowly pinch the end and roll it up to put a little bit of pressure in the line. And make sure that it doesn't immediately leak back down, you know, in, in two or three seconds where you've got a massive leak somewhere in the system. It could be that simple, but you're just, you know, I, I, I actually went and checked this out. I, I verified that my lines didn't get forgot and are just hanging loose in the, in the, in the wing root because I forgot to actually plug the connectors in. It's real simple, but again, it's just kind of getting it on your radar so you can knock these things out. Okay. Um, not so much in the DAR realm, but other things that you might overlook as you um, as you start wrapping these things up. Well, Jeff, can I interrupt with yep, you? Go ahead. Just one more. Yep. I'd like, I'd like to get Tim. What's you know we kind of got Tim on here to kind of go over his things, and he's trying to finish things up. Um, what what else? Tim? Is there anything in particular that you're you're looking for, or things that might have cued your interest? We might need to discuss. Well, I uh, I know that you're going to be doing this as a topic on another uh, another podcast, but the the weight and balance thing, calculating the correct. Uh, well, my, my experience, I'm I'm a 200 hour pilot. I I came from a 172, and this is literally my first build. So um, there's a lot of numbers that you have to come up with. Um, especially Jeff was saying in the in the program that you submit to the FAA as well. But um, it just I don't know exactly. You don't know what you don't know. And that's kind of why I reached out. Um, 
to do this episode to begin with. Um, calculating the weight and balance, the moment, um, all those numbers, um, that sort of thing. So that's kind of well, in the back of my mind is perplexing too. Tim, uh, even as a <clears throat> a 200 hour pilot, you had to do your weight. You had to do calculations of weight and balance based on moment to get your pilot's license. So you know how to do the calculations. You just don't know how to apply those to a Sonics, right? Yes, correctly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I know how to calculate the weight and balance in a 172 perfectly. Yeah, <laughs> it's just and, uh, and again, it, it actually works the correctly. exact same way on the Sonics. You just have to have the right, you know, uh, the uh, the the datum point and the different moments of the different positions. Jeff has a wonderful spreadsheet that I use uh, um, on his uh, website that is excellent for for uh, for doing this. So th- it takes the black magic out of it. Um, you just, you know, it, it's not a big deal. We can walk through it. Um, if you have a question, uh, any of us can help you. Uh, yeah, put these numbers in. It's a, you have a tri-gear, so it's this. You know, you're going to put your thing up on scales. You got to find out someone that has scales or, or get uh, scales yourself. EA chapters will generally have a set of scales that they all in their tool loan <clears throat> program. So and that brings us to one more little point, which probably doesn't applicable to Tim because Tim's got a, a nose dragger, so all three of his wheels are even. But for those of us who have tail wheels, you actually have to jack the plane up into a flyable attitude to do your weight and balance so the tail is not on the ground you have to actually jack this thing up and place a scale up on top of your jack to weigh it yeah you have to level the uh uh, on at the cockpit and then that's where you measure the tail wheel weight and it does make a big difference um you get it up there it's it's going to be 20 pounds less than when it's sitting on the ground what's next tim uh, honestly, it's just uh, prioritizing what needs to be done. You guys touched upon that before. It's uh, um, you know what the DAR is looking for, what what things should be nitpicked, what things can wait until after the phase one or after the first couple flights, and um, just want to get experience from from you guys of what what you guys did. And yeah, creature what, comforts can wait for sure. Uh, you know, you really actually have to satisfy the guy who's inspecting your plane with this fizz to a DAR. Uh, so make up, you know, to determine what you're going to be used, get in touch with them and ask them, sir, what would you like to see? What do I need to have available? Because that's what your 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 goal at that point, because you basically built an airworthy plane. You already certified that yourself that it's airworthy it is now to find out and convince him that it's airworthy and he may have different ideas. Very oh, good and I'll, also, I'd say as you're as you're um, especially after you you do your smoke test of your your avionics, um, you're going to be setting parameters for alarms, and you're going to be one. You're going to want to be fairly conservative on those because your first flight, you don't want a ton of alarms coming on that you you don't need to be dealing with. So you know, EGT limits, uh, CHT limits, oil pressure limits. Make them very conservative so that you're not having to deal with that. Um, I had nagging Nancy constantly alarming me on my first flight, and it was very distracting. Maybe not conservative, but more liberal, perhaps. Liberal. Liberal. That's it. Yeah, yeah. you don't want those alarms the, going off too too early. 
Yeah, you especially EGTs, they're almost always going to go off, and you know, EGTs are almost useless to begin with. CHTs, not necessarily so, uh, but EGTs. Yeah, I mean, you gotta you gotta take it with a grain of salt, but that that was one of the things. And I've done a couple of first flights. I did Carl's Turbo Aero V, and he had every alarm coming off on that thing on the first flight, and it was more distracting than it was. I was trying to fly the plane. I ended up having just kind of ignore the entire EFIS. Um you know, for the first half hour. Yeah, John, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because you really need to check out your instruments and, and like exactly you said, making sure that you don't get distractions. And another distraction that can come is you haven't really spent any time with your, your new EFIS or, or whatever. And so there's something, you know, you get off on the wrong page and you're not sure how to get back to where you kind of wanted to be, you know. So make sure you spend a little bit of time in the seat with the instrument panel fired up and you at least have a basic understanding of the buttonology. You don't want to be fumbling on first flight because you inadvertently hit a button and now you're on a sub page and that's not where you want to be, but you can't figure it out because you're doing a million things that are brand new. So spend a little time, get comfortable with it and make sure that all your sensors are working and there's no crazy alarms. And I'll use like low oil pressure as a, as an example, everybody's like, oh yeah, I'm going to want this thing to tell me whether I have low oil pressure or not. But if you never checked it out, um, you don't need that thing to be going off constantly flashing low oil pressure because there's a bad sensor. You've been running for 15 minutes. You're not sure whether the engine is actually experiencing a low oil pressure, but you never actually checked out that alarm function and that sensor. And so now you're just, you're distracted by it in the back of your head. So go through all your instrument stuff and just make sure it's ready to fly. Tim, on your Garmin display system, how many pages do you think was in the installation manual versus the operation manual? Oh, boy. That's a good question. Um, operation manual is definitely smaller than the installation. <laughs> but yeah. um, I, I, the installation manual itself is about 800 pages. Yeah, um, my Dynan display was about 500 pages each to give you an idea how, how complex these these the digital displays can be. So, yeah, they can get pretty overwhelming sometimes. And, and you know, it's it's obviously dependent on the builder. If they add more features, then it's going to be uh, exponentially more confusing and more difficult to, uh, to program. Uh, I know there's a lot of things, especially with the Garmin system, that they want you to configure. Uh, in the first couple flights, uh, specifically with the pilot and uh, the trims and and stuff like that. So uh, well, there's a lot of things you could program on the ground, um, such as position-wise. Put autopilot off until after 20 hours. Uh, I'm not even going to look at it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's another question that's, uh, you know, while you're developing your program, obviously, for your phase one testing, it's, how big of an area you're looking at? Is that dependent specifically on the DAR? Can you say, hey, I want it within a 200 nautical mile radius of this airport? Or the, uh, what the have you standard, guys found? Yeah, the standard thing is they're going to give you like either a 25 or maybe a 50 mile radius around your home airport. But you can ask for something that makes sense. And if you say, hey, that doesn't make any sense because there's congested airspace off to the to the one side, but there's totally free airspace the other. I want to I want to make a a unique shape in this direction, if it makes sense, they're probably going to give it to you. And if you're living in Colorado and there's nothing anywhere, they might give you a hundred or, or, or more mile radius because there's just nothing else out there. Well, you know, I had all of these in Colorado. 
Yeah, I actually would look at it a little bit differently. I've cut, I've done it a couple of different ways. Um, I, at, with more time and experience, is I would look for a very conservative uh, um, phase one operation area. You want you want if you have an area that you got at like say half a dozen airports in twenty five miles, that's the area you want to be working in because if some Something goes wrong, you are almost always within gliding distance of somewhere, if that makes sense to you. Yeah, sure. In Colorado, I, I could have gotten actually hundreds of square miles in my, my last uh, operating areas. Uh, but, you know, in hindsight, if something happens, and it did, unfortunately, I'm out in the middle of nowhere and it's going to be an off field landing, if that kind of makes sense to you. No, it makes perfect sense. And unfortunately, in southern New York here, um the airport i'll be flying out of is a delta delta airspace and unfortunately like 30 miles just uh to the west is uh the bravos of uh jfk and LaGuardia. so uh my whole airport local airports near your your primary delta that that uh, there there's a couple Uh, yeah there's a couple uh you know they're class c's and class deltas uh, class charlie and deltas there but um, I just didn't know what kind of leeway they give you in terms of the program. Uh, obviously, they're not going to let me go west. I don't want to. No, they're <laughs> going to keep you out of Bravo. I can almost guarantee you. That. Yeah, I would certainly hope so. Uh, <laughs> but I don't I know mean, even – I'm under the mode C veil of the Bravos anyway. So Sure. Um, but look at your areas and really think about how many spots do I have to, to realistically possibly put this down during phase one when something goes wrong I don't expect and don't necessarily look for vast, expansive areas uh, to go out and just tooling around for hours. Because be realistically, many times to do phase one, there are a lot of things you really need to check in. You know, other than, as we talked before, my first goal for my first flight is to do three circuits around the airport uh, just to make sure how the cylinder temperature is doing, the oil temperature is doing, what my basic flight control status is. And I'm not going anywhere. And so you're going to do several of those kind of flies just to make sure this thing actually does fly. And now as you start to expand out, you know, you want to be able to have a lot of little satellite airports, potentially, if, if ideally, that you can put down if, if something doesn't go the way that you want it to. No, that's yeah, a Tim, great point. If, if you ask for something that makes sense to the, the FAA, they're going to give it to you. And so the two flavors you're going to see most often is radius around my home base or you're going to say, you know, the area generally defined by, and then you're going to draw lines between airports. So it could be a essentially a square from this airport to these other three in a box, you know, something like that. And so think about it in terms of that. And um, again, their goal is to keep you someplace safe and out of the way while you do your phase one. And after that, it won't matter. So And, and not like in that. densely populated areas. So a few other things that you want to check out when you're doing your instruments. Uh, you want to make sure that your alternator is working properly. This is a real common thing. You, you know, early on, you're not really sure if the alternator is working because you do your first engine start, you fire it up, and at low RPM, you don't get any significant alternator output anyway until you get up into the mid-range or something like that. And you don't have very much time, so you're not really sure. You weren't really looking at it. You're not really sure if your alternator is working or not. So just make sure that's just one item on there. Specifically go and check, yes, I am getting charging voltage. 
because you don't want to be distracted again on that first flight by um, a low voltage alarm or something like that because your bus voltage is falling because you're not getting any charge current, you know, that type of thing. And then uh, your fuel, you know, make sure you calibrate your fuel tank. And my advice is if you can't get it to calibrate right off the bat, then go low tech, make yourself a fuel dipstick and use a timer. And that's one of those things that you might have to kind of work on later, but you absolutely don't want to forget about that and, um, and be one of those weird cases where there's just not any gas and, you know, you have some, some weird situation. So if you, if you know your fuel tank is, is not reading correctly, then you might become a little complacent, like you're used to seeing it read zero because, hey, it's all messed up anyway. And you kind of forget, oh, yeah, there really is no gas in the tank. <laughs> so just, just uh, you know, use a dipstick and go low tech until it's working perfectly. What's next, Tim? So, Gary, I, I want to make sure that we also cover, make sure that your engine is really, really ready to fly. Now, we've talked about this with Mike Singleton and, and some of the other things in preparing for first flight, but you got to make sure that the carb is tuned properly. You're getting sufficient amount of fuel flow to the carburetor, and so you've got to do that fuel flow test. And if you have to redo it because you're not sure, then redo it. But you need to make sure that you're delivering the raw potential amount of fuel the engine needs and in kind of an as-installed type of situation. And then before you go fly, you're going to want to do that one minute test, you know, a minimum of one minute. It needs to be able to run at full power without blowing up on you for a minute. Because when you do your taxi out, you're, you know, you, you take the runway for the first time, you do your takeoff and you're, and you're climbing out, you're likely to be in a pretty hot situation by that point on that first flight. You got to have made sure and proven to yourself that that engine is actually ready to go, and that one-minute full-power test is a way to, to ensure that it really is. So don't don't forget to do that as well. All right. Um, I guess the, the last point is just some of those kind of random miscellaneous things. You're going to the airport, and so you need to make sure that you have your, your hangar secured or you have a tie down spot, uh, you don't want to roll up onto the ramp and you can't get in the gate because they only give you the gate code. If you're a paying tenant, um, you know, you don't want that to happen or you, you have a hard time getting out on the ramp because you haven't, you know, you haven't really gotten access. So make sure you, you secure your tie down spot or your hangar well in advance. Make sure you understand what the requirements of the airport you're going to be operating out of. Most airports are going to tell you that they require you to have liability insurance. Whether you want whole coverage is up to you, but in order to use their airport, they want you to have liability insurance to cover, you know, the damage to other airplanes in the public and all that kind of stuff. Um, some airports are really good about checking. Others, they tell you that, and that's the last time it ever comes up. But make sure you understand what is expected of you uh, if you have to produce evidence or you have to add the airport as a covered party onto your insurance policy. And then um, make sure that, you know, if there's any other paperwork that has to be done, you know, you have a state registration decal or something like that, that you have, you've researched that and you, and you understand what's applicable. And this is where pilots in your area can really kind of help you out, especially your EA chapter. They'll tell you, you know, what you need to do. And then um, other things like, you know, if you have to do use tax on the airplane because you didn't pay sales tax when you bought it 
Um, and so the state's policy is the assessor is going to charge you with either personal property tax or use tax. And uh, maybe you sort of slip under the radar and he never finds out. Or maybe they come out to the ramp uh, every month and they do a survey and then they hit you up with a fat penalty because you didn't follow their process. At the very least, do a little bit of research, talk to some pilots in your area, figure out what the deal is, and make sure you kind of go into it, at least understanding the rules that you got to follow. Lastly, uh, make sure you go get yourself proficient. And this is not a, you know, a half hour fun flight with a friend in a Cessna. This is whatever level of training that you need to get yourself really, truly proficient. And we've talked about this in other episodes, but this is the point where you want to invest in yourself and you don't need to ding your airplane on that first flight just because you were a little rusty or something like that. Spend a little bit of time and a little bit of effort and money and make sure that you are really, really ready to go and truly get your proficiency where it needs to be. And you want to plan that into your timeline and all that. All right, guys, what else? What are those other little random miscellaneous things that we kind of learn usually by missing them the first time around? Well, if you're just trying to to wrap up the situations, uh, make sure your battery is fully charged. (laughs) I know one of those things, don't ask me how I know, but yeah, make sure your battery is fully charged before your first flight. Hey, Gary, I got one more thing. Actually, it just came to me. Um, Let's talk about... Wheel pants and gear leg fairings on or off on first flight. So there are pros and cons to both. So what do you think the the pros and cons would be to either putting on your pants and fairings or leaving them off? Is that for me? Yeah, go ahead. Take, I want to hear you. Uh, I think gear leg, gear leg fairings are a must on a Sonics with those round titanium legs. I have done both. And I can tell you there is a significant drag penalty for a round tube of that size on a gear leg. Pants, you know, I like to go naked. <laughs> I don't care for wheel pants. That's just a cosmetic item for me. Um, so I don't care about those. But I did notice a significant penalty on gear leg fairings. Yeah, Gary, I kind of agree. I think maybe that's the optimal match. You don't want to pay the drag penalty, especially on your first flight. You need all the power you can get, and not wasting it on airframe drag is a good way to, to use your power efficiently. That's going to make the engine just run a little bit cooler because it's not lugged down, you know, dragging all that, that uh, gear leg drag around. But not having the wheel pants on there allows you to see your tires, to check to make sure there's nothing weird going on in, in how they're moving. You can check your brakes out and all that. So the access and getting them out of the way where they're not going to be damaged um, is probably worth the extra couple of miles an hour that you're going to lose by taking the wheel pants off. So that's what I kind of think as well. Gear leg fairings on, wheel pants off, and then you can always add your wheel pants on uh, when you're sure that you're not going to have to get in there and make brake adjustments or things like that. All right, John, what other words of wisdom do you have for Tim? Well, I will say that if you call Sonics and say, uh, you know, I've, I've been flying my, my uh, turbo aero V and, and I can't get the temperatures cool enough. Why, why is this? They're going to first ask you, do you have the wheel legs the the uh, fairings on your legs because they want that plane to be as efficient as possible to get that airflow through it um 
so I would say definitely the gear legs, the, the wheel pants, you know, I'm a, I'm a wheel pant. I, I like wearing pants. So, you know, I'm not like Gary. that just walks around without his pants on. That's because um, you're in here. I, I, I'm a, I'm a man of, uh, of, of culture. So, um, <laughs> if you got them, wear them. Uh, if you don't, well, if you, you got them, flaunt them. <laughs> <laughs> no, we've gone down this path, you know, on first flight stuff, uh, before. And I think, uh, you know, I don't want to regurgitate all that kind of stuff, especially with Mike, uh, um, you know, he, he gave us some great ideas on first flight. So we don't need to re we just need to get Tim, you know, to the airport and ready for his business inspection. Yep. Can't wait. Anything else? Cause he's going to try to beat me to Oshkosh as the first super B customer, super B to the yes. But Tim um, has and, a badass B versus just a super B. Yeah, yeah. My super <laughs> B is is pretty badass, but it's not a badass B. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, John. You'll be the uh, the first tail dragger YX, and uh, I'll be the first uh, nose dragger Sonics. I can I can share the title with you, bro. All right. You guys can pull up and flank uh, the factory's B model, and uh, pull up on either side of it. That'll be a nice photo. There you go. Yeah, hey, Tim, uh, t tell us about that. How did you get your artwork done? That was kind of cool. So, yeah, I mean, I, I love John's idea of the Super B, you know, coming from, uh, I'm assuming, what, it's a 70s Challenger Challenger? I'm not really sure. but no, it's a 74 Super B. All right, very nice. Yeah. That's Mopar, man. It's Mopar. Mopar. It's all Mopar. Um yeah, no, I love that. Uh, but I just wanted something different. I mean, I wanted to go on the B theme, and John had Super B, so I figured, hey, mine's pretty badass, so let's go with the badass B. <laughs> and I just went on, um, honestly, I just paid an artist. It was like 30 bucks on the app Fiverr, uh, F-I-V-E-R-R, -R, and they just do, there's a lot of starving artists on there that just want the work, and it was pretty cheap. You know, I figured, good. hey, let's go for it. Thanks. Yeah, I think it turned out great. Uh, it'll be cool to see that on there. Yeah, definitely. I'll, yeah, I'll mine, the mine is definitely not custom. It is stock Mopar Google search Super B. <laughs> oh, it looks good, man, especially with the stripe in the back and the yellow. It just it looks good. So. Yeah, that was actually before John's time, though. That was in prime time for me. That's that's because you're like like a thousand years older than everybody. Yeah, yeah, no, you know, you know, you know, when I looked at the Super B back at about seventy two or seventy three, you know how much that thing cost? I have no idea, and I don't care. As, you know, you will, because as I remember, it was about thirty four to thirty six hundred dollars. Now it's okay. now it's worth several hundred thousand. <laughs> yeah, if you could find one, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, if only, right? A if warehouse only. full of them, perfectly preserved. Yeah. All right, Tim. So now that we've given you some things to think about, um, do you think that there's anything that <laughs> you're like, oh, crap, I really messed that up. I need to go back and, and rethink that. Or um, or are you feeling more confident about the, the, the march to the, getting that, that first flight? 
I think the only thing I really screwed up is the timeline. <laughs> uh, hoping I could get this all done by April or or May, but um, yeah, we'll see. I mean, there is still a lot left, but it looks, you know, it, at least sitting in the in the garage, it looks like it's mostly done, and uh, just got to keep plugging away at it. That's that's the hard part. Sometimes it's it's hard to get motivated. Um, I certainly wish you luck, but I, you know, unfortunately, I'm going to be the pessimist here. I think you're just a tad optimistic. But I yeah, do, probably. I do hope you success. Just got to finish rebuilding the ROV and then uh, mount that sucker back on the firewall. But as all of us will tell you, the plastic sucks to deal with. Uh, oh, oh, no, it doesn't, Gary. You're you're just Eeyore. You're just Eeyore. I am. I'm a professional Eeyore. When you get to be my freaking age, John, you're going to be hee-haw, hee-haw all day long. <laughs> Tim, it, it, it is absolutely variable. You could get it done quickly if everything works smoothly, or it could take you two more years. So um, <laughs> um, I'm not going to be as bad as Gary. I think, yeah, if you're motivated and you get after it, you can get it done. Yep. I've been wrong on this podcast before, so maybe you're right another two years, but who knows? Uh, you know, if you're going to try to finish that cow to be a perfect, you know, uh, representation of what you want to show, or, you know, enter into the uh, the EA Oshkosh uh, uh, contest, you know, for, for the, the Grand Lindy, yeah, you're going to be two years out. If you just fit it, and don't care about the fit and finish too much. You get it. You get a flying. Yeah. No, I just, I want to get flying at this point. It's, you know, you, what is the, the famous saying? You have enough money to build and enough money to fly, but not enough money for both. So I'm itching to get back in the air full time, yeah, you know? And sometimes we've all said it before. You just got to say, this is, this is enough. I got to get it done. I want to fly. Exactly. Yeah. And you can start making decisions. Is this, an airworthy thing, or is this a cut? And you just kind of push the cosmetic stuff off. You'll never get to it, but you're going to be flying because you're going to have fun. That's all that matters. Can't wait. Yeah. A little rattle can on the nose, and you're fine. You know, it's like, hey, at least it's not, you know, prime or white. Anything else, Jeff, to, to wrap this up? Well, Tim, we'll give you one more crack at, uh, at John and Gary. Any uh, Anything that that we failed to, to answer or is this a good place to wrap it up and, and then uh, watch and see how it all unfolds. I think, uh, I think you guys really hit everything and definitely answered a lot of questions I had prior to starting this. So I appreciate it. And I'm certainly glad you drilled out that number four uh, oil restrictor plug. Yes, definitely did. (laughs) Maybe a little bit too far, but it's all right. It all worked out. It looked fine with the pictures I saw. And I appreciate, I just want to put it out there as a shout out. I appreciate everybody on the forums and on the Facebook group for, uh, and, you know, even just direct messaging people. Uh, people have helped me along the way since uh, 2017. Can't do it without you guys. So thank you. Yeah, it's, it's a wonderful community that I found in the experimental aviation. Uh, you know, like everything else, sometimes you get great ideas and sometimes you get kind of fuzzy ones. Uh, but you can certainly find a lot of a lot of assistance out there if you just ask. All right, Tim. Well, back to the workshop. You know, no rest for the weary. So get out there and 
just get on it and uh, power through the doldrums and get it done. I mean, we know you can do it. Yeah, man, definitely plan on it. Looks like Isaac's doing a great job on his too. So can't wait to see all more Sonics is flying up there in the air. Yeah, it's going to be a good one at Oshkosh. So we're going to save you a spot on the line. Can't wait. All right, guys. Well, I think that does it for this episode. So we do have uh, another really cool episode coming up in, an, in another couple of weeks. And these are those extended wingtips from Tim Allen, uh, his company, Allen Flight. And we're going to hear about how this refinement process is going and what it takes to get a set of these and put them on and the modifications and then what you can expect performance-wise out of them. So it's all very exciting. It's cool to see people doing kind of off-the-beaten-path stuff and having success at it. So we're looking forward to that. And we'll talk to him here in a couple more weeks. You can visit us on the web and find the show notes for this episode at sonicsflight.com slash 68 and subscribe to the podcast and finding us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, all those other podcast apps that you might use, or you can go to the website and listen to it directly from the computer. Send us an email. You can find our email links on the website or to feedback at sonicsflight.com. And with that, Tim, Thanks again. Appreciate having you coming back on. Great to hear about your project. John and Gary, good to talk to you guys as always. So, and we'll see you again soon. Yeah. Thanks a lot, guys. See you guys later. Have a great night. Adios. The views and opinions expressed on the Sonic Slack podcast are those of the hosts and guests alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of any individual, company, or organization mentioned on this program. Nothing presented on this podcast should be construed to be the official position or recommendation of anyone not directly associated with Sonic's Flight. Anything that sounds like advice should be carefully considered before being implemented. Remember, you are the pilot in command.